Welcome to week four of our series called Uncommon. It's actually a, a series about relationships, really, whether it's, you know, married or, uh, you know, going in that direction, or maybe it's even coworker relationships or family relationships or acquaintance or stranger or neighbor. All different kinds of relationships is what this series really encompasses. And man, we have done some killer ones so far. We've had Uncommon Love, which was by Pastor Steve, and he did a great job. We had Uncommon Commitment by Dr. Greg, Uncommon Conflict by Dr. Greg, and we're going with Uncommon Influence tonight. Now, not only is this a series that dive, dives into relationships, but it dives into the differences between how the world does their relationships and how the church is supposed to do their relationships. So the key verse for this series is Romans 12:2, and it goes like this. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way that you think. And then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Let God transform you into a new person. Don't copy the behavior and customs of the world, right? We're supposed to be different. We are actually set apart, set apart from the way that the world does relationships. We are called to be different. And tonight we're going to crack open what it means to have uncommon influence, and now, when it comes to uncommon influence, Jesus is your guy. Jesus actually redefines what it means completely to be influential. Jesus was king, king of heaven, right? King of heaven, king of the kingdom of God, come to earth. And what, you, what we have to understand when we read about that is that the Jews back then and that day, they were expecting a Messiah. They were expecting the king from heaven to come. And really what they were expecting was this. If you'll excuse me, I'm going to grab this real quick. What they were expecting was this kind of influence, this kind of influence right here. They were expecting the king of the kingdom of heaven to show up on the scene and chase out all the sinners and all the, the people that were kind of putting them under bondage. They were under Roman control at that point in time. The Romans were mistreating the Jews. They basically had taken away their kingdom, and the Jews were crying out, and they were expecting this Messiah figure. They were expecting this king of heaven to show up, and that when he showed up, he was going to bring the sword, and he was going to deal with Israel's enemies. He was going to come in on a war horse almost in the tradition of King David and King Solomon who would rout their enemies whenever enemies would come against Israel back in the day, back in the heyday of Israel. The kings were there back then with the sword to chase off the enemies. So the Jews were expecting the sword to be in the hand of the king when he showed up. But what they got from the king of heaven was actually an upside-down kingdom. Jesus defied the expectations. Instead of bringing the sword and bringing death to their enemies, Jesus, Jesus submitted unto the death himself. Jesus, instead of coming to rout the people who were who were treating them harshly and, and putting them in physical bondage, Jesus showed up and released them from a spiritual bondage, a spiritual bondage to sin and to death. Jesus was doing things on a whole different level. He redefined what it meant to have influence. It was an uncommon influence for sure. 
And when it comes to uncommon influence, Jesus is your guy. Now, in this upside-down kingdom, as some people call it, right, the upside-down kingdom where you expect the king to show up in power, but he shows up in humility. When you expect the king to show up in judgment, but he shows up in mercy. When the high are made low and the low are made high, then you have an upside-down kingdom. And that's what Jesus was bringing. His disciples, they were mostly fishermen. They were mostly the low. God called them not from positions of authority and positions of power, but called them from actually positions of like fishermen, tax collectors that the whole society at the time hated them. They treated them as traitors. He chose from them and he brought them into his upside down kingdom and he made what was low in the eyes of the world into the high. They went on to become world changers. You know their names thousands of years later. Peter, John, James. You know their names. They were nobodies. The low that God made high because he is the God of uncommon influence. Unfortunately, with the disciples, it kind of went to their head a little bit. Right? That influence went to their head a little bit. They actually get caught a couple times. Uh, well, first of all, Jesus gives them power, empowers them, and says, go out and do things in my name. You can heal. You can go out. You're preaching, but you're healing. You're releasing people from bondage. You're doing supernatural signs and wonders in my name. And they go out, and they're able to do that because Jesus sent them out in that uncommon influence. But it goes to their head, as you see here in Luke 22. They're hanging out together, and this is the disciples that's talking about it. It says, within minutes, they were bickering over who of them would end up the greatest. But Jesus intervened, listen, kings, kings like to throw their weight around, and people in authority, they like to give themselves fancy titles. You're talking about and arguing about who's going to be the greatest among you. This is what the world does in their relationships. They make fancy titles for themselves, and they love being in positions of authority, and they lord it over the people, but not so with you. It's not going to be that way with you. And it goes on to say, let the senior among you become like the junior. Let, basically, let the greatest become the least. Let the senior among you become like the junior. Let the leader act the part of the servant. Upside-down kingdom. And he asked them, would you rather be the one who eats dinner at the table, the one who eats the dinner, or the one who serves the dinner? Two different types of people. The ones who eats the dinner are the ones who are serving the dinner. And he says, and he knows, and he's almost talking to us. He says, you'd rather be the one that's served, right? You'd rather be the ones that are eating the dinner. I know that is true for me. But I've taken my place among you as the one who serves. So now you have the king of this upside-down kingdom who could show up and demand that you get on your knees and serve him and do whatever that he says. And instead, he humbles himself even underneath the lowest and he shows up and he is serving the fisherman and the tax collector. God. Uncommon influence. Upside-down kingdom. 
And he goes on and he takes that point even further. And you'll, you'll probably know this story. It's in John chapter 13. And we pick it up. They're eating a meal. Speaking of eating at a table, they're eating a meal. And Jesus gets up from the meal and he takes off his outer robes and he wraps a towel around his waist. And it goes on. After that, he pours water into a basin and he begins to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with it. This is God. This is Jesus. This is the king that they were expecting to show up in a sword and chase out the Romans and chase out the sinners and stomp in his wrath the winepress of his fury. This king shows up and strips onto his undergarments, puts a towel on, fills up water in a bowl and starts to wash feet. He attempts to wash their feet. So he dries them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Next, he comes to Peter and Peter says, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? You, my stinky, hairy-knuckled, fisherman, probably fish-smelling feet, sweaty, nasty, you, we call you Lord. What are you doing? This is not even what we expect or even want from you. Peter actually tries to stop him. This is not what we want from you. Even the disciples wanted something else. Even the disciples were expecting a different kind of influence. But Jesus shows up with that uncommon influence. So it goes on. Jesus replies to him, you don't realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. And they have a little bit of back and forth, and then he finally allows Jesus to wash his feet. It goes on. When he had finished washing their feet, Jesus puts his clothes back on, his outer robes, and he returns to his place. And he says, do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. Next. You call me teacher, and you call me Lord. Lord, master, ruler. And rightly so, for that's what I am. But now that I, your Lord and your teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Jesus is saying, let's read between the lines a little bit. You're not better than me. You call me Lord. You call me master and teacher. But look what I'm doing. Look what I am doing. And if you were arguing before about who's going to be the greatest among you, look what the true greatest among you does. And I'm setting that as an example to you. That's an example that stands to this day. And that's something that we forget about all the time. In ministry, in life, in, at work, whatever. We forget that example that Jesus said. He came not to be served, but to serve. And he says, Listen, you who are calling yourself by my name, this is what I expect of you too. This is the example because you're not better. Are you better than him? Anyone? Are you better than Jesus? Because Jesus says if you are, then maybe this doesn't apply, but you're not. Therefore, this applies to you, Christian. This applies to you. These are like these like simple truths that are forgotten about. We hear the story, but we forget what it means, myself included. What does it mean to serve others? What does it mean to love other people selflessly and have uncommon influence? What does it mean? Lord, 
God washed their feet, but God also washed your feet. Everywhere that you've been in your life, everything that you've walked through, everything that you stepped in on the way to where you were going, every sin, every issue, every time that we messed up, all of our footprints combined lead to where our feet are today. And Jesus has washed your feet every step of the way. You very much are who Jesus is talking to here by extension. He forgave us, actively cleansing us of our past so that we could be clean before him, washed by him. Praise the Lord. It's an upside-down kingdom with an uncommon king. And as subjects and followers, Lord, we're supposed to have uncommon influence ourselves. So I'm going to talk about six ways that we can have uncommon influence. Number one is invite God into your situation. No matter what that situation is. No matter what it is. It's a crazy situation, invite God into it. You're doing well right now, you're rich, you're balling, whatever, invite God into it whether high or low or anywhere in between, invite God into that. Make, make God part of your everyday life. Colossians 3.17 says this, whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now let's talk about uncommon relationships. Let's talk about it. Inviting God into your situation, in your relationships, because we're humans. And relationships is just part of life. You go to work and you have relationships with the people around you. You go home and you have relationships with the people around you. You pass strangers in the streets and you have some kind of a relationship with those people that are around you. Is there a co-worker you're clashing with at work? Is there somebody in school that you're clashing with? Invite Jesus into your situation. Are you having issues with employees or maybe with your boss? Invite God to be a part of that. Marriage, dating, listen, we're all going to screw it up without him. Invite God there into that relationship. I told a story last time I preached. It was, it was about, and I'm not going to get super into it, but, but I um, actually met my wife in, in California, in Hollywood, and, and we were working for a ministry. It was, a, it was kind of an evangelism ministry. So we go out to the streets of Hollywood, um, Venice Beach, Santa Monica, um, and, and man, we'd get together beforehand and we'd be praying. We'd be praying. And after a while of like going out and doing those outreaches, you start to understand like when you invite God into that situation, into even those relationships of people that you haven't even run into yet. For example, we'd get together in a circle and we'd be like, Lord, this sounds very Christianese and you'll have to forgive me, but we'd say like, Lord, we pray for a, like the divine appointments out there tonight, God. That meaning that whoever you got out there that needs to hear your word in season, which is right now when we're walking out there, whoever needs that word, that you would bring them to us and bring us to them so that they would meet with us even out there in the street of Hollywood where it's like clubs and bars 
stars and celebrities and cool people everywhere, but out there, right then and there, Lord, that you would set up that relationship, that you are invited there, God, and that we would find those people and pray for them, God, and that we would speak that word even out there. And you know how many times at the end of the night when we're driving home, we're like, oh, man, that person I met out in front of that club or that person I met down the street was totally a divine appointment. It was totally the person that we were praying, God, bring that about. Invite the Lord, even on a daily basis, even tomorrow morning, Lord, that you would just bring the person that needs to hear a little bit about you today, that you would give me the courage to even speak that today, God. Invite God into your everyday life. We have Easter coming up. It's actually very soon. It's next weekend, next Sunday. Speaking of inviting God into your situation and talking about relationships, did you know that 82, the stats are this, 82% of people who don't go to church, they could even be atheists. If they are invited by somebody that they know, 82% of those people are likely to go, especially on Easter, 82%. That's four out of five people that are not Christians that if you knew five non-Christians in your life and you talked to five of them and invited them, Statistics say like four of the five would be likely to come to something like Easter. Four of the five. Think about this this week. We have a, we have a little board back there on the way out. People are writing down the names of people that they're praying that are going to come to Easter. And really, it's not about stat padding. Like, I, I, it, it's, <laughs> it's just like an awful thing to even think about that. That it's like, oh man, we got, you know, 80 million people to come to our thing. It was so amazing. Look how awesome we are. No, it's not about that. It's about an opportunity to invite people and invite God into a relationship together. And it's, and it's just life change, life change. So consider that on the way out today. Writing down somebody's name on that board. Inviting them. You never know what God can do with something like that. Something as simple and silly as that. The second way we can have uncommon influence is take God at his word. Take God at his word. Abraham Abraham, considered the father of faith. Abraham believed God and influenced the entire world. Hebrews 11, 11. Faith enabled Abraham to become a father, even though he was old, like old, old. And Sarah had never been able to have children. Abraham trusted that God would keep his promise in spite of physical circumstance, he believed God at his word. He took him at his word and he said, Lord, you be true and every man a liar. I'm going to believe you to the end. And God credited that to him. Abraham was as good as dead. Yet from this man came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the grains of sand on the seashore. He was a man so old, it was forget about it. He, the, the Bible says he was as good as dead. But God promised him a child from his own loins. And he said, all right, if the physical circumstances prove look impossible, I'm still going to go with God on this one. And God came through. Now, it's, it's easy to say, like, well, that's Abraham. Like, what does that have to do with me? That's Abraham. God spoke to him directly and said, you are going to have a child even though you're 100 years old. What is God speaking to you? What has God spoke to you? Let's take something simple. 
something simple. I don't, I don't have the slide, but in James, James chapter 1, it says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. Is that a word for you? It's a word for me. I know for sure I, I lack wisdom. I lack wisdom for sure. So I said, God, your word right there says it. Your word right there says it. And I'm asking you for it and I'm standing on it, God, that you would give me wisdom because it says that you give generously without finding fault. Well, I don't know. How were you today? What would you do? Did you mess up? Did you swear at somebody? How was school? Were you nasty with a teacher? How are you with your spouse? God isn't going through this checklist. You can never, it's the impossible checklist. No matter how good your day has been, you could never be good enough to warrant God being like, okay, you're amazing. There, I curtsied to you. Take God at his word. If you're reading it and it says, if you ask for wisdom, he'll give it to you, then honestly, you should ask for wisdom and he'll give it to you. Stand on it. Have that healthy tension where it's like, do I believe this or not? God, do I believe this or not? Do I believe that you've said this is for me or not? That's a good place to be sometimes. Fight it out a little bit. Stand up, take that like invisible sword that you got and be like, no. I'm not going to listen to my own mind and my own doubts. I am going to stand on this word that God has for me. God is going to give me this wisdom through this situation. And you will. The third way to have uncommon influence is don't let failure be fatal. Don't let failure be fatal. The Bible is like riddled with people of failure. People who have gone through crazy things. People who have missed the mark so many times. So many. That's basically the story of humans in the Bible. Constantly missing the mark and failing. But you know what? There's always redemption with the Lord. There's always redemption. Even Peter, who was like, I don't know that guy that you're about to crucify over there. I have no idea who it is. I didn't walk with him for years. I, no, no, no. If God can redeem that, surely he can redeem your failures. You fall off the wagon. Can I be honest? You fall off the wagon. God can redeem that. You mess up some relationship with somebody, God can redeem that. Absolutely. 100%. Psalm 37 says it like this. The Lord makes firm the steps of the one who delights in him. Though they might stumble, they're not going to fall. For the Lord upholds him with his hand. It may feel like you screwed up completely. But there's even a proverb. It's about a righteous person, a righteous man. Though they fall, they keep getting back up. 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 Though they stumble, they keep getting back up. They keep getting back. You fell off the wagon, get back up. You missed the market something, get back up. God's redemption is there, powerful. To fail is to be human. To be human is to fail. God expects that. Don't let failure be fatal. It works even in business. How many failed ideas? How many failed projects? How many times could people just be like, oh, yeah, I failed, whatever, like done, oh, that was too bad. 
But then, on the other hand, how many times has someone learned from a failure? You know, I don't know how many of you guys have the Bible app on your phone. It's called YouVersion, right? Probably a good number of you. Uh, you know why? Because there's, like there's like over 300 million downloads. 300 million. Think about that number. Downloads of the Bible app. So let me tell you a story about the Bible app. The Bible app didn't start out as a Bible app. In fact, it started out as a website. And the website, it was up for a while, but it wasn't doing very well. It was not doing very well at all. It was doing like, eh. And they were putting a lot of resources into this thing. And at the end of the, at the, end of the rope of this, they were like, you know what? I think we're going to maybe pull the plug on this thing. But let's try one more thing. Let's try one more thing before we call this thing a total failure and just move on to something else. I went from website, desert wasteland, nobody's really visiting this thing. They put it in the mobile store. They put it in the app store. An Apple, within three days, three days after they put that in that app store, it was downloaded 80,000 times. 80,000 times. What was a failed idea became a step in the process of learning. And now, 300 million downloads later, that thing is incredibly influential. You know, it was designed by a 19-year-old kid, the mobile app. Can you imagine being 19 years old, working at a church? part-time, and you're like, all right, we're going to go all in on this app. We're going to take this thing that failed, and we're going to go over here, and we're going to try and pivot a little bit and see what happens. A 19-year-old kid develops this app, puts it in the app store on a Friday, and on a Monday, that kid is suddenly working full-time at Life Church, which is the biggest church in America. That's where the Bible app came from. That's the story of the Bible app. Do not let failure be fatal. Don't give up that easily. Another way to have uncommon influence is to use the power of your testimony. Use the power of your testimony. What's your story? You don't have to have a crazy story like me. You can be, have a, have a, have a story. My wife was, was a pastor's kid. She grew up in the church. She didn't hit the streets like I did. But she was faithful through that process. She, she turned away from the temptations that the world threw at her. That's actually an incredible story, but sometimes people, when they hear, hear like a story like from somebody like me who's you know, been on the streets or been in Hollywood evangelizing to people and seen all this crazy stuff happen, it doesn't have to be that kind of a story to have power. It doesn't. The Bible talks about us overcoming by the blood of the Lamb and the power of our testimony. My testimony, I've, I, I, I've, it, it has enabled me to speak to people that maybe like my wife wouldn't have that same angle to be able to talk to those kind of people, but vice versa, and then vice versa with you as well. Maybe your story, I would not have the kind of influence that you have because you're the one that lived it, and that's your circle of influence. Those are your people. They're the ones that you can speak to directly because of what you've gone through and because of what your life experiences are. When I was like 20, I mean, I grew up in Connecticut. When I was 20, this is before I knew the Lord, I, I, I basically jumped on a Greyhound bus and went to wherever with no money. I ran away. I took off. Life couldn't do it. And I, I'll tell you stories, and, and sometimes like it feels weird to even tell those stories because on one hand it's like ridiculous and like it's almost embarrassing to tell those stories, but on the other hand it's like, 
That's still important. That's important because it's what God has done in my life, right? So at 20 years old, I remember walking down the street in Phoenix, Arizona, a city I'd never been to in my entire life. I had been there for a couple days. I had nothing but the clothes on my back. I had spent all my money on a bus ticket just to escape where I was coming from, just to run from the things that I was running from. I'm walking down the street in Phoenix, Arizona, nothing but the clothes on my back. Actually, I had a backpack with like two things in it or something. Wearing the same shirt every day. It's like 110 degrees walking through the streets. And I remember walking along. I remember this the rest of my life because it's my story. Because it's my testimony. It's what God has brought me from, right? And I remember walking down the street, looking down, wondering like where I went wrong with my life and what happened by myself in a city I don't know. And I remember looking down and I remember seeing 10 cents, a dime on the ground. And I remember this moment, I'll remember forever. When I looked down and I saw 10 cents in the ground, my mind immediately, as I bent over to pick it up, my mind immediately gave me like a reality check and was like, this is more money than you have in your entire name right now. 10 cents. That's more money than you have in your entire name. That's more money. Man. I remember sleeping outside. 20 years old. This is like half my life ago. But I remember. I remember sleeping outside. I remember sleeping outside. West, the west side, the west coast is a little bit different than the east coast. Like east coast has winter and stuff. So in my opinion, you have to be like a little bit more, hardcore is probably the wrong word, but you have to be a little bit more hardcore or something to be like homeless four seasons like out here in the east coast, especially when it's you know, snowing and, you know, almost April. But out there in like Phoenix and California and stuff, like when you, when you travel around, like you meet people who are like four seasons homeless and they're, a lot of times, they're just people running away from stuff. So when I was out there, I remember sleeping outside and meeting other people out there, younger people my age. I was like 20. I would meet like 17-year-olds, 18-year-olds, 19, 20, 21, you know, youngish people out there, mixed in with older people, of course. I remember sleeping outside in Phoenix, Arizona, outside next to a dumpster. The dumpster was literally shielding me from the road so people couldn't see me and the other people that were there. That was our camp spot right? I remember sleeping there at night with a newspaper mattress and a shoe for my pillow that I took off my foot and put under my head and looking up at the sky at night and calling out to the wolf god or the moon god or the god of the stars or the god of the streets or whatever that it could be that would save me. And I remember, as Phoenix, I remember like, it's probably like two in the morning, I'm getting cold and a couple clouds start moving in, and it starts to, like, drizzle a little bit. And I was like, wow. I bet when this happens, like, you're supposed to jump into the dumpster and pull the lid on top of you and, like, hide from the rain so you don't get soaked. I'll never forget it. I'll never forget it because it's my story. That's my testimony. It's embarrassing to say sometimes, for sure. But you know what? Honestly, there's power in that. And I know it. Because God took me in that situation, fast forwarded a couple years, and then brought me back as like a street evangelist going to the same type of places where I used to hang out at when I was on the street so I could go to those kids that were out there and be like, listen, I've been out here and it sucks. But I know something. I know something and I'd like to introduce you to somebody. God used that. Now I'm married to an amazing woman. I have an amazing, beautiful daughter. I have another one on the way. 
That's the power of transformation. That's the power of testimony. But it doesn't have to be crazy, wild, on the street, whatever stuff. What has God done in your life? Because that is just as powerful to the people in your circle. Your life is your life. Only you have lived it. You can speak to those around you. You can influence them uncommonly. I'm going to go to the fifth thing. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Excuse me. I, I want to I mention another testimony of a guy that you may have heard of, right? I'm not going to name his name just yet, though. I'll give you his first name. His name is John. This is from like a couple hundred years ago, right? This guy, I'm going to tell you a crazy story. This guy, this guy grew up on the seas. He's from England. He grew up on the seas. He grew up like serving on ships and stuff, right? And he was actually eventually kidnapped by the Royal Navy and forced to get onto a ship and serve on a ship, forced to. So this man, John, goes onto the ship and he's forced to be there and he tries to desert. So they take him. They take him and they put him in front of the entire crew, like 350 men, and they flog him like almost 100 times. They flog him and flog him and they kick him back as just like a common sailor among the men and he's like totally and completely humiliated and beaten. He's so upset, he's thinking about murdering the captain and committing suicide. Eventually, he gets off that ship and gets onto another ship. Unfortunately, this ship is a slave ship. Ugly. It was an ugly, very terribly ugly season. At that point in time, England, 80% of their foreign money that they were making, their foreign influence, what was coming in for them, was out of the slave trade, 80%. That's insane. This guy was on a slave ship. He didn't get along with the people there. They actually, when they got to Africa, they actually kicked this dude off and sold him into slavery. You know who this guy is. Stay with me. Sold him into slavery. So he was a white guy from England, sold into slavery in Africa, ditched there, left behind by his people. He was in slavery next to other slaves and beaten and mistreated he was there for years, years. Finally, his father went to go and rescue him, sent some ships to go rescue him, find him. They found him. They started to bring him back. And as he was coming back across the sea, the ship that he was on hit a rock. And a big old gash appeared in the bottom of the boat, and it started taking on water. And in that moment, this guy didn't know God. In this, that moment, he cries out to God. To save him. And the ship lurches and cargo spills over and actually kind of plugs the hole that was ripped in the bottom of the hull. And it's not perfect, but it slows it enough that that ship can kind of drift on a little bit more and eventually he gets rescued. Now even though this guy, something has started in him, right? It's like the beginning of this like conversion process. This guy is still kind of a scumbag. By his own admission, He's not fully converted yet, but he had like an experience that's gnawing at him. But he goes back to what he knows how to do. He goes back to running slave ships. I told you he's a scumbag. He's running slave ships. He's, he's on these things and he's, and he's seeing and witnessing how terrible this is. But 
coupled with what he has gone through and crying out to God in that moment and God's starting to do something there, coupled with like watching people being mistreated, coupled with his experience of actually being sold into slavery in Africa for a while, he starts to have this like kind of awakening and something is gnawing at him, gnawing at him. Eventually he disavows it. He says, no more, I can't do this anymore. And he, and he embraces this conversion, this Christian God. Some years go by, he becomes a priest. He becomes a guy devoted to ministry. Some more time goes on, some more years go on, and this guy, this guy becomes an outspoken critic against slavery, against the slave trade. He's been there, he's seen it. It's the power of his testimony. He's actually instrumental in changing the tide of the understanding and the popular opinion in England at that time. Being a part of this like anti-slavery movement that started to rise up. The guy was a scumbag turned changed and transformed. His name was actually John Newton. He's the guy, you might know him from a song that he, he wrote that's called Faith's Review and Expectation. Does that sound familiar? Faith's Review? Yeah, it shouldn't. It's actually Amazing Grace. He wrote Faith's Review and Expectation, but the first line is Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound. Saved a wretch like me. I once was lost. Now I'm found. I was blind, but now I can see. It's pretty crazy. power of testimony. The fifth way to have uncommon influence is to use the power of your position. Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. Now it comes to pass afterward that Jesus went through every city and village preaching and bringing the glad tidings into the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, the twelve disciples. And certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa. Now look, look who this is here. We're talking about position. We're talking about uncommon influence. Joanna is a woman. Chusa is not one of the disciples. Joanna is a woman, along with Mary Magdalene and other women who are following along Jesus with the other disciples. And these women are all there. Now, Joanna is the wife of this guy, Chusa, who is Herod, the, the king, the governor at the time, steward, which means this guy... This family, they were like in charge of this governor's household. They were people of influence. And she, as a person of influence, was getting together with some of these other women, and they were following along these disciples. And it says, many others who provided for Jesus from their substance. So Joanna here, along with Chusa, they're using their position a position of influence in the governor's household. They're using that to provide for the ministry of Jesus. They're bankrolling this. They're bankrolling the ministry of Jesus and disciples. Using their position and the power of their position. I told you about that guy, John Newton. John Newton had a friend his last name is Wilberforce, right? Wilberforce. Wilberforce was a, was a guy who was in the parliament, the English parliament. He was fancy. He was basically a senator. He was like England's version of the senator at the time. Now, of course, 
you know? As it is with politicians, like there's a lot of like corruption and greed maybe sometimes like involved in those circles. Now this guy was involved in those circles, but he became a Christian while he was basically a senator. This guy had such like a crisis of conscience because he had become a Christian, a, a true believer, that he wanted to quit. He's like, I can't be around this stuff. This is like crazy. I don't want to be a part of this. So he goes to visit his buddy, who's now a priest, this guy Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace. And he says, what do you think I should do, pastor? Should I leave this whole like senator thing behind because it's just gross and I don't want anything to do with it? And Newton said, no. He says, use your position for uncommon influence. Where you are in your life for uncommon influence. This guy Wilberforce listened to that and went back. And over years, years, this guy He's fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting. Eventually comes to believe that it is his mission from God in the position that he was in in government to work for the abolition of slavery in England. It took him like 45 years. 45 years. He started to like introduce bills like we're going to abolish slavery and it would get shot down like 260 to like 12 and then two years later, he'd introduce it again, and he'd get shot down again. And then two years later, he'd introduce it again, and get shot down, and get shot down, and get shot down. And sometimes it'd get close, and then it would get shot down. And sometimes it'd get close, and somebody would betray him, and it would get shot down, and shot down, and shot down, and shot down. After like 45 years, this guy, Wilberforce, he's old. A lot of his friends in that movement, the anti-slavery movement, have passed on and died. They were not able to see the results are the fruits of their labor. This guy Wilberforce, after 45 years of fighting, blacks and whites together, fighting to end slavery. Three days before this man dies, he gets news that the government of England is going to abolish slavery. And he dies having seen that. 45 years of using his position as an uncommon influence. Now, you don't have to be a senator to have a power in your position. My wife is from Colombia. We went and we visited Colombia one time, man, and I, I met some people that I'll never forget. We were visiting a small church in a place called Verhel, which is like as close, it's almost, it's almost jungle. I don't know how to, how to, how to, how better to say it. It's like not, you're not in the Amazon, but like, to my eyes, it's pretty close. The pastor of this little church, the day that I met him, he was telling, telling a story about, like, he had dengue fever, which is pretty much malaria. And he got up, and, like, after weeks of being, like, bedridden, he got up and went to his kitchen, and there was, like, a viper. There was, like, a venomous snake in his kitchen that he had to kill with a machete. And I was like, this is not uh, Connecticut anymore. This is not where I come from. This is a crazy story. Anyway, so we're at this church. We're, like, visiting, and they have service on Sunday morning. And I'll never forget this family, man. It, it was a young couple, and they had like two little kids, like maybe like six and eight years old or something. And we started talking to them. Uh, they were telling us that it took them like almost four hours to get to church that day. And in fact, it took them four hours each way, just about, to get to church and to come back because they lived in the middle of nowhere. But they loved the Lord, and they loved the Lord's people, and they just wanted to be in church, and they just wanted to. They would travel for like two hours walking with their children. They would get in a canoe 
and cross a river, which took them forever, like an hour or something. And then they'd land, and then they'd walk like another hour just to get to church. And I was sitting there when I met them. I was so convicted because at the time, my wife and I were living 10 minutes down the street from our church, but some Sunday mornings it was like, yeah, it's kind of far. Like, I don't really want to do this right now. And I mean, these people out there, they travel like four hours each way to get to church. And when church was, was happening, it was like they didn't want it to be over. It wasn't like, oh, man, I can't wait to, oh, I can't. It was like, we just want to be the church. We just want to be the church. It was like such an inspiration. That was such like a, a thing. You don't have to be in a position of high authority. Sometimes the low are made high. Sometimes the high are made low in that upside-down kingdom. The sixth way to have uncommon influence is to know who you are in Christ. Maybe the most important one. Know who you are in Christ. You are designed to be a people of uncommon influence. You are different from the world. You've been set apart. I'm not saying that that means you can look down your nose at everybody and talk about how like, amazing you are and how they're not. Because Jesus came and what? Was washing feet saying, do like he does. Matthew 5. You are the light of the world. Like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. You are the light of the world. Why? How does that work? Why are you the light of the world? Why are we the light of the world? Because you have Jesus inside of you. Jesus inside of you was blind, but now you can see that light that you have inside of you is meant for a reason, to show, to shine, to show people what it means to know the Lord, to shine in situations and relationships that the world will get wrong a hundred times out of a hundred, but through the uncommon influence that God has given you. You can be different. Dr. Greg last week was talking about, it's kind of interesting, he, was, he, he mentioned differences. He was talking about like people today, we are like so easily kind of almost deceived to be focused on each other's differences that we forget what we have in common. It's an absolute, to me it's like an absolute tragedy. And I think sometimes people do it on purpose because they're trying to keep us fighting. Trying to keep us fighting. We forget. So okay, all right. I'm, I'm not calling for raising hands, but I'm going I'm to have like a real life example here. It's like, I mean, I, I work in the church. I've been in the church for a long time. It's like you get people who, when Obama was president, were like, I hate Obama. And then you get people when Trump is president, you're like, I hate Trump. And it's like everybody wants to fight each other and fight each other and fight each other. But you forget what you have in common with those people. You forget. And what the enemy just desires more than anything is to keep us at odds with each other, to keep us separate from each other because a unified church 
is unstoppable. Think of all the churches just in this area. Think of all the professing Christians, say from here to Boston. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people. But we get deceived by the world and we get kind of tricked sometimes to go about our relationships with each other the same way that the world does it, which is to focus on differences, which is to just want to shout people down, caps locked, speaking on social media all the time. That's the way the world does it. But what does God want you to do in that? What does God want from us? To be the salt of the earth to be the light of the world, to be that change, to see that you have things in common that outweigh your differences. How powerful that could be if we could be a true unified body for Jesus, to truly be his hands and his feet out there in your positions, your circles of influence, your stories, your people, your families, your coworkers, your communities. And if together, through the sinews and the tendons and the bones and the skin and the fluids and the blood of Christ running through our veins as a body, if we could move as one, if we could wake up and rise up, I promise you the church is a sleeping army. And I don't mean that about the sword. I mean that in the upside-down kingdom. We are a sleeping army because we're so busy trying to figure out each other's differences and how can I not get along with you that we forget what it means to be who God has called us to be, Christian. He's called us to be people of uncommon influence. I'm just going to pray and close this out. Lord, I, I just, I thank you, God. In your amazing grace, Lord, You've opened our blind eyes, God. Every single one of us, Lord, if we know you, God, at one point we were blind to you. We were blind to your light, God. But you came into our lives. You opened our eyes, God. And you brought that light into us, God, that we might also be light of the world, God. Shining your light to the ends of the circles of our influence, Lord that we would be distinct and different, God, that we would be of this upside-down kingdom where we're not looking for fame and power and authority and control, God, but that in your kingdom, the greatest among us will be the least, God. Lord, help us to remember your examples, God. Servant leadership, Lord. Loving the low become high and the high become low but we all meet in the middle Lord the valleys are made high and the mountains made low God but we meet in the middle Lord you are the great equalizer Lord and we praise you God in the name of Jesus Lord amen